Cool. So today I'm really happy to welcome Robbie Ferguson, co-founder of Immutable on the Metaverse Show. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So we describe Immutable as powering the next generation of Web3 games, uh, zero gas fees, 9K plus TPS and 100% carbon neutral. And we're going to get into a little bit more about all the different uh, wonderful things that you can do with it. Um, But some of the reasons why we've got you on the show, Immutable is one of the fastest growing unicorns in Australia, just generally, which is awesome that a Web3 startup is uh, making that impact with a two and a half billion valuation. Um, it's kind of long-term vision is to bring blockchain gaming mainstream and I assume uh, evolve the play to earn proposition from its kind of uh, early iterations. Um, you have closed up to $300 million, uh, latest in your series, uh, C, um, you yourself are a Teal fellow. You co-founded Immutable at 21 with your brother who actually spoke to probably about a year ago now. And you've got half a billion gaming funds, so uh, lots of reasons to hate you there, Robbie, for your uh, your o- overachievements. Um, but let's get into your background. So as I said, you co-founded uh, Immutable with your brother um, uh, at 21. But how did how did you uh, arrive at this? Have you always worked with your brother? Um, and uh, I guess what led you to this kind of opportunity space? Yeah, so uh, I've been building software companies with James, my co-founder and brother, for the last eight or nine years. Uh, We are also massive gamers growing up. So we used to play everything from RuneScape, MapleStory, Neopets, actually, as as kids. Uh, Anything with an economy, we were big fans of. Uh, There was one story where I was, we shared a RuneScape account, which is against the policies, but I went into the wilderness with his dragon armor, which is incredibly expensive, and I got player killed and, and lost all his items. And I felt so bad about this that I wanted to go out and buy with my pocket money in-game gold so that I could buy him these items back. And I did that. And two days later, the account was banned. And six months later, Jagex rolled out bonds where you could buy with cash in-game gold. And so it was pretty clear early on just how much impunity these publishers wielded over games that very much had real economies that felt real to end players. Um, so I guess that was part of the, the seed of early motivation, although we certainly weren't uh, anything close to, to doing this back then. And one of the, I guess, core ways we, we ended up working together was um, we got into Bitcoin in 2014 and then Ethereum in 2015. Bitcoin was sort of boring. I, I, we were semi-interested in it, but we were completely obsessed with Ethereum. Uh, and we started building trading bots on Poloniex and then decentralized exchanges. But it wasn't until 2017 when we were both writing a white paper together on a lending protocol we were calling the Distributed Autonomous Bank or DAP. And uh, we were about to launch it when five ICOs went to 20, went to 100, and the whole space got very frothy. And we had no goal of uh, doing something non-compliant. We wanted to do something that could go really big without being sort of um, regulated out. And so we dropped this, but serendipitously at the same time, CryptoPunks came out. 
we looked at these and we said, this will be how gamers own their in-game items. And so we actually started out by building the first ever multiplayer game on a blockchain. It came out in December 17. All of the logic was on chain. So right now you can play a match and you will spend you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars in gas fees trying to, to run this round. But we learned a lot early on, on sort of the architecture of Web3 gaming, the potential that game went viral and, and helped us sort of raise money off, off Coinbase and properly get started. Uh, and the other part of your question was, what's it like working with him? Uh, we, Funnily enough, first six months of the company, we've been best friends for the first, you know, I was 21 at the time, 21 years of my life, started the company and suddenly you had this immense pressure on top of that friendship because uh, all the things we've done before had been, you know, less stressful than essentially being pulled by this opportunity. And so we, we, we had terrible fights. Um, and about six months in, we decided to very consciously upgrade our communication. We read a book called 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Jim Detmer. I highly recommend. And that changed our lives. And I haven't had a fight with James in four and a half years. And so that's how we are today. You do have uh, some other brothers as mentors, right? You have uh, uh, the uh, Collison brothers, founders of Stripe as your mentors. Yeah, I, I think those guys are fantastic. I think they are very self-reflective uh, as, as kind of the defining trait and also focus on high leverage questions, which is ultimately what will propel any idea or business forward. Um, so I think those guys are fantastic. I think they've built a fantastic culture um, as the, the company has grown and, and we try and replicate a lot of, of what they've done. Yeah, it's funny. In crypto, there's quite a few brother co-founders, right? Whether it's... Um... Uh, I think at OpenSea, you know, I certainly know within our portfolio, um, the kind of Fluff World Brothers uh, out of your part of the world in, in New Zealand. Um, I've always felt of it, felt as a, an only child, it's a bit of an unfair advantage, but at the same time, you really also really got to make it work, right? I can imagine it can uh, can also be very, very testing, as you just said. Um, let's just talk about Gods and Chain, because I think that's when I first spoke to your brother. I was doing a documentary on the history and future of NFTs. This is about a year ago, over a year ago, a year and a half ago. Um, and obviously, Gods Unchained has a, a place in the history of NFTs, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know at that point, probably weren't even being called NFTs. Um, can, can you just talk about Gods Unchained a little bit and, and its importance in the evolution of um, not just you know gaming, but also NFTs? Of course. So when we were starting out, I think it was March 2018, we always wanted to build a platform. But at that point, no one knew what an NFT was let alone Web3 Gaming. And so taking a leaf out of the playbook of Valve, who built Counter-Strike Go and leveraged that into Steam or you know even Epic Games and Fortnite, we knew we had to make a piece of content that showed people why this mattered. And so that to us, the clearest opportunity was Gods Unchained or a trading card game. And the reason was it existed in the real world. And this wasn't inventing some far-flung hypothetical products that people might want to use in crypto. This was saying people have traded Magic the Gathering or Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon cards for decades. The estimated secondary market cap of physical Magic the Gathering cards is $20 billion. But we also have this advancement called digital gaming, where Hearthstone dwarfs the player bases of these games, had convenience at your fingertips, was able to have updates and and zero marginal cost of distribution, the convenience of of the internet. And being able to blend the two and say, well, hey, why don't we have a real economy? 
where people can have metagames and genres built around the fact you can own and trade these assets, uh, but with the convenience of a digital game combined. And uh, that's why we started off with Gods Unchained, which today is one of the most played blockchain games in the world. I think yesterday it was the most traded NFT collection in the world. And the really cool thing about that was what it learned, it let us learn in terms of experimenting with economies, in terms of experimenting with uh, growth paradigms around tokenomics. And now we're able to share all that IP with every game building on Immutable. And we literally share with other card games, um, which I think is is what is really cool about category creation is there's literally no Web3 game competing with each other. Sometimes games come to us and they say, well, you know, we're competing with X. And I say, well, you know, we're all really competing at the end of the day with uh, the traditional Web3 gaming incumbent, uh, Web2 gaming incumbents and a model which exploits players rather than empowers them. And to what extent is the byproduct of Gods and Chain, the kind of stack, the technology, um, part of Immutable and what it offers to other game developers? I, I mean, it's it's a huge influence in terms of what it forced our architecture to become. And this is why I think a lot of platforms which didn't start by dogfooding a use case have not arrived at the right security outcomes, scale outcomes, or user experience outcomes. So, when we launched one of the first major sales of God's Unchained back in 2018, I think there were more than 15 million NFTs, which at that time was more than every other NFT in the world combined. And the week we we're about to launch this sale, an exchange called Fcoin, if you recall it, was launching. And they decided as part of their launch, they would have a marketing stunt. And this marketing stunt incentivized gas fees to be bid up on Ethereum. They're essentially incentivizing transactions on the network, uh, valueless transactions. And so for the first time ever, the GUI, the gas price on Ethereum went from about two to over 100. Suddenly the card packs that we were going to sell for 10 cents cost, you know, five, ten dollars, uh, twenty dollars for a pack of cards that you bought for two dollars fifty. So the unit economics didn't make any sense. And so we A had to optimize. And so we actually invented in that week batch minting and deferred minting, which are scaling paradigms used by most major marketplaces in uh, sort of minting solutions today. But what we also realized was that optimizations were not enough. You needed to fundamentally have a cost basis of nothing if gaming economies were going to emerge. And that's just really simple maths. You look at a popular game, you've got 100 million DAO on the biggest games in the world. If they're trading just one asset per day being created or traded, if you have a cost basis of even a cent, it's a million dollars in costs per day for the developer or for the players. No matter where it sits, it's completely unsustainable. And so we realized we had to build architecture that allowed people to mint a billion, 10 billion NFTs completely for free for these economies to emerge with freedom. Uh, and the second thing we, we realized is that security was really paramount. You know, we were never happy to compromise to put our users' funds at risk. And that's why we waited. So, like, we, we have prototypes of state channels. Uh, we have prototypes of uh, side chains, but we were never happy with, with the underlying security models. of Plasma, which ultimately never really sort of uh, took off the ground and ultimately kind of reinformed into, into sort of the optimistic solutions we're seeing today. It was pretty clear when ZK Rollups came out that they would be the future of Ethereum scaling. The question was, would they be production ready? And so we took a bet, and I think that's been the right bet. Um, and it's, it's pretty clear now that the future of any scaling will be ZK rollups on, on whatever L1 is going to be successful.
So, you know, we're like Q4, <coughs> Q4 2022, the hubris of the kind of initial focus into like, you know, I guess mainstream focus into NFTs has kind of come and to a degree gone. Um, there's lots of skepticism, certainly in the gaming industry as a whole, both users, platforms. Um, what have we learned and, you know, do we, how do we evolve play to earn? I think we've learned a lot. I think the first thing we've learned is that the most exciting model for Web3 right now is how do we make products that are genuinely better for many, many end users? And I think both DeFi and collectibles were early. You know, they were putting the cart before the horse, which is collectibles are exciting and I have nothing against uh, valuable, rare digital art. I think it's beautiful and innovative. But what we're really excited about in terms of taking this mainstream is how do you take an economy with 100 million players and give people 10 times the value they get in the real world? And that's the disruption law of tech. Unless you're delivering 10x value, you're not actually going to thoroughly disrupt things. And those sort of luxury spends will emerge, especially once we have this long tail of, of sort of normal usage and, and these digital, digital property rights become uh, standard. We see this in mobile gaming all the time. You will have whales spending crazy amounts of money, but they're supported by an economy where hundreds of millions of people are playing. Same thing with DeFi, which is, you know, DeFi, I think, is brilliant. I, I, I think it's going to take over the world. It'll be the back end of financial ecosystems. But ultimately, it's there to service assets. You have things like futures or options or derivatives or index funds in order to provide better utility and liquidity for stuff that people want to buy or trade. And that stuff doesn't exist yet in Web3. That stuff is NFTs, uh, particularly NFTs representing things that people want to trade, not for speculation. And so that is fundamentally where everything in crypto is arriving. We're moving away from inflationary uh, rewards for tokens. We're focusing on real yield. We're moving away from uh, speculative-based demand to uh, demand based on utility-based assets. And we're seeing how can we actually generate traction on un you know, banking the unbanked, on empowering financial liquidity for things which are very illiquid in the real world. Um, to me, Web3 Gaming is the greatest example of this because if you look at NFT stats, collectibles are down 90 to 99%. God's Unchained volume is higher than it was in the bear run. And that's because its play base is larger. And that's exactly what we should be seeing out of Web3 games. Their economies should be correlated not to the price of Ethereum, but to how many players does the game have and how sustainable and successful is the economy. Those are the inputs. Same thing with finance. The volume should not be uh, how much are people speculating on this financial asset or, or yield farming. It is how many people get better access to finance by trading tokenized term deposits or insurance assets or bonds or things where we're creating better financial outcomes for businesses or and people. Yeah. And so I remember, um, I was getting confused with the years now, maybe 2022, maybe 21. There's a lot of talk about NFTs decoupling from wider crypto. Now, of course, that's not turned out to be true. Um, but I do think long term, you're actually right. You know, we kind of refer to it as MetaFi. The idea that really you're looking at it from a financial inclusion perspective, people being able to collateralize digital stuff um, and for that, creating a financial system that recognizes it as a, as a, as a form of wealth, right? Um, so, so look, you are now sat within a kind of platform and ecosystem with a lot of capital, both in terms of the capital that you've got 
to finance product development, business development. Um, uh, you, you have a fund to be able to kind of invest. Um, what's your strategy for growing, growing the ecosystem? I think it's pretty simple, uh, which is, A, make it ridiculously easy for high-quality games to build a better, ownable gaming model for their players. And that means solving every problem. How can they build incredibly easily? How can they scale to a billion players? How can they have mainstream user experience? How can they never compromise on security? And how can they have their tokenomics and in-game economics sustainable and done easily? And so our view is really that the platform is the, the major component of this that we've built today, but it's also our expertise we've built through building games, being at the coalface with them. You know, the reason we build Guild of Guardians is because we think it's so important. There's a flagship mobile game that we go through every pain of building on the App Store, building on the Play Store, experiencing a mobile user experience, and sharing all of these in playbooks with every game building on us. So I, I think that's rule number one. And if you look to the trend of mobile gaming history or social gaming history or free-to-play gaming history, the shift to each of these new paradigms of distribution only occurred when a flagship hit defined what playbook success looked like and you had many, many copycats because it means it's very simple for everyone else to say, well, hey, this is how you build a game leveraging Facebook social graph and I just built good games. Here's how I distribute now. Or great, here's how I build a free-to-play game. Uh, and literally people objected to free-to-play games when this came out. They said it was a scam that it was first for players and now it is by far the dominant paradigm. So I think uh, there's always inevitable pushback and what it requires is content to show the way of, of how to make it easy for everyone. Uh, and the, the second approach is podcasts like this are fantastic for people in the industry, but ultimately they're never going to convince the billion players out there or the people who hate NFTs in crypto. The only way those people are getting convinced is the same way people who said the internet was a, a bubble being burst in the 2000s is, which is just build value that just completely dominates and creates more value than anything else before. Uh, and this to me for gaming is build a mainstream game with a hundred million players that delivers far more value than the incumbent model. And no one knows it uses crypto or NFTs unless they look very closely. Uh, and that to me is the gold star for how we take things mainstream. Yeah. It's interesting uh, that you're kind of continuing um, with the kind of studio model. It's almost studio first, right? You dog food, within a kind of category of game, you solve your own problems uh, and you then make that available for other other developers. Presumably, you then also invest in those, those other games, right? Those other game studios. Precisely. Um, so, you know, if we kind of, if we look forward over the course of 23, again, you're in a great position, right? A, a lot of people are going to be running out of money um, or at least, you know, feeling the pressure that much more so you kind of timed it um you, you timed it really well that said of course you know you've been you've been uh, uh you've been in it for a while right so it's definitely uh, uh, not an overnight uh, success um how do you see 23 playing out do you see larger game studios um taking a m more serious engagement with the space uh, obviously, a few of them kind of had their, their fingers burnt with, yep. you know, fa fairly poor um, execution or, or like very kind of short term 
almost campaigns to test the water and very quickly yeah, backtrack. Yeah. Exactly. It, totally. And I, I think we'll see a shift away from that model. And a lot of these studios are bullish, but their approach won't be puff their chests out and say, here, we're doing X. It will be a more subtle approach of experimentation, similar to you know what is often done with the early prototype games, where they're going to invest money, they're going to see retention, um, and they're going to soft launch and, and really start to see the metrics on these things. We still will not see major AAA gaming studios shift their entire sort of platforms over to this, of course not. But what we will see is uh, a lot of studios between 50 mil to a billion enterprise value start to make big bets uh, to shift majority of their content over to Web3 in order to compete with the marketing budgets of these much larger games. The thing that I found surprising is throughout this bear market, the interest from Web2 Studios has probably increased uh, net. And so what we're seeing is, you know, crypto is probably actually one of the more resilient uh, sectors out there compared to all tech markets right now, especially in terms of fundraising. There is buckets of dry powder. And within that, Web3 Gaming is by far the fastest growing category of that. So it's actually one of the most insulated or growing categories in the world right now. And I think that's because it's counter-cyclical. People love playing games, even during a recession. And net spend goes up. Uh, sorry, net spend goes down slightly, but time usage goes up to, to sort of um, net out positively, even, even in times of macro downturn. And the second thing is that the, the sheer amount of VC money and talent flowing into the space is insane. There's been $10 billion now poured into Web3 games over the last two years. This is more than gaming had in the first decade of the 2000s. So it is the writing is on the wall that this is very clearly the, the biggest emergent economy to appear. New layer one blockchains raising fancy rounds from big VCs are taking DeFi out of their decks and replacing it with gaming and GameFi. It is the new hottest kid on the block. And very much what we're going to see in the next bull run is a massive rotation into you know, utility-driven trade and, and gaming theses uh, because that is where the next 100 million users are going to come from. Now, of course, uh, in recent news, I think it was in the last month or so, uh, Apple announced um, that they would effectively allow for in-app um, purchases of NFTs with a relatively high uh, transaction fee. What's your view on the role of Apple and, and of course, you know, Google and Android in uh, this sector? Well, they're incredibly powerful gatekeepers. Uh, they're the most powerful distribution gatekeepers for games. Uh, what I think will be fascinating will be, uh, is their approach hardline, would like to take clips on everything? And how will that approach mature as we see increasing competition from non-in-app sources of trade. So we've already seen this model with Netflix, with Spotify, where they opt not to offer in-app purchases in order to conduct off-platform uh, purchases without paying the fees. And that's because they simply don't want to pay 30% on subscriptions. It doesn't work with their margins. And the propensity to subscribe to these businesses is sufficiently high that they don't need app stores distribution for, for that uh, point of sale. I think we'll see similar things with Web3 economies, where particularly as you get whales, they're going to not want to pay this 30% premium on assets that are essentially tradable. So you're, you're taking an immediate loss of, of 30% um, by conducting in, in these stores. That being said, I think it's going to be phenomenal distribution for everyday players. And I think it's going to be in, incredibly important for these games going mainstream. So how that uh, tension evolves, I don't know. 
I think there'll be increasing pressure on uh, Apple and Google to reduce their fees. I think that's uh, very obvious. And I think competitors like the Epic Store are trying to challenge the dominance of those fee models. Um, so it will be, yeah, it, it, it's going to be a very interesting next decade. Um, and ultimately, I think Web3 will put downward pressure on aggregator pricing and distribution pricing just because of the very open nature of, of these asset books and order books. Yeah, very cool. Um, so final question, let's like zoom out. Let's look forward over the next decade. Um, an area that personally interests me or as an outlier is this kind of convergence of Web3 technologies and AI in the creative process. Um, so the ability to generate scenes, 3D objects, characters um, can dramatically accelerate um, the process of making a game. Um, it can reduce the cost. Yeah, how much does that factor into your your thesis for for gaming? A lot. I mean, this is why gaming is subsuming everything. Is Interactive forms of entertainment will be how people consume everything. Music, movies, TV combined are smaller than gaming. And they're actually becoming gaming in that kids watch concerts in Fortnite. Uh, so I, I think huge. And, and then what we're seeing with the built, the precisely, built, you know, trip, uh, Hollywood movies built with the same tools generally. UE, a hundred percent. Um, and the really cool thing about AI-generated stuff is the thesis, I think, behind Ben Thompson's strategy uh, docs is, is often, you know, he, he talks about commoditize your compliments. Whatever the complementary goods to, to your product is, you want to make them as cheap as possible because it makes your product more valuable. Um, and the ultimate sort of complement to games or to content is the assets that comprise the content itself. Uh, 3D models, 2D art the gaming maps, uh, entire games, artificial intelligence for character behavior, pretty much everything. And my belief is in 30, 40 years, you'll be able to type into a prompt, make me a film starring, you know, a rom-com between uh, Ryan Reynolds and Emma Stone set in France with uh, a spy who comes in and from outer space and, and steals the Declaration of Independence. And it will generate that. And that is when human creativity is truly unleashed, in my opinion, because it's no longer bridled by uh, skill limitations. It's it's pure creativity. But it's also where we see some of the craziest economic effects happen, which is like the value of content plummets. The value of aggregation and curation and value assignment skyrockets, which is what you know the complement is. And that is Web3. And that is Web3 for gaming. So the reason Roblox has won over the last decade and the reason Minecraft has won is they've captured the right level of fidelity when it comes to how can they capture UGC. Minecraft, it's incredibly simple to mod, create a map, and have people participate in it. In Roblox, it's harder, but the developer incentives and, and platforming is more sophisticated, and so they have the right balance of you know creating an ecosystem and then having games. But they had to put way more effort in uh, early on in making the games themselves, a lot of primary content. And they still take 70% of fees. What we're going to start to see is models which completely decentralize and give away their, their rake or their margin in exchange for ridiculously fast-paced growth, long-term uh, moats and, and network value, where everyone is an incentivized stakeholder of this ecosystem. And all we're doing is, is sort of um, having Web3 price and curate 
what user-generated content or AI-generated content people find most valuable. Um, so super bullish on, uh, I mean, pretty much in a year, we've taken art inside of video games. We, we, we've struck off a zero from the cost, right? That, that is a, not a common thing to happen in an industry. Uh, it has not even really happened based on AI automation before. We thought truck jobs would happen first and creative labor would be last. And, and uh, now it's happening in the space of a year. Yeah, well, look, I think we, we just have to end on that note, right? Um, su- super bullish, super exciting. Um, Robbie, it's been great to speak to you. Say hello to James for me again. Congratulations I will. On, on all your success. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys make happen over 23 and beyond. Of course. Thanks, Jamie. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.